Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we are live, rocking and rolling again on Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. I am very happy to have somebody who is a legend in our sister regiment, our competitive regiment. We always have a good rivalry going on and make fun of each other and call each other silly names. But, uh, a former member of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and then uh, he was in charge of the military police, and we got even better names for those guys. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, John Barnes, for being on the show today. I appreciate it. It's my honor to be here. Oh, fantastic. Um, we've got a lot of ground to cover, brother, but let's just start with your book. That's a big darn job. We were talking a little bit about how that got started, you didn't really intend for that to be a book in the beginning, did you? No, that, it was just writing. It was an opportunity for me to write down my feelings and my thoughts and some of my memories, and it was never meant for anybody else to ever read. And I was very honest in my writings. Um, and and really, I mean, I, I wrote some pretty negative stuff about myself and I wrote some positive stuff but it didn't concern me at the time because it was never going to be read by anybody uh, it was a long process it uh, it started when uh, I first got diagnosed with uh, PTSD and some anxiety and depression stuff and I found it to be like therapy almost for me where I was able to sit alone and just put my thoughts on paper and it was difficult at first because I, I was never a writer. Uh, I am an avid reader, but never a writer. And then the words just started flowing, and I could spend hours just writing, and uh, my thoughts would just disappear. So it was good. What gave you the idea to do that? Was that uh, your own initiative, or was did a professional or, or somebody else suggest that you start journaling and whatnot? A little bit of both. Uh, when I finally accepted the fact that I needed to talk to someone professionally. Mm. Um, one of the first things she said to me was, you know, have you ever thought about writing down something each day, whether it's positive or negative, just something. And uh, it kind of then got me thinking that I was having issues with my memory. And mm. uh, yeah. I had a head injury in Afghanistan as well. So I have post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, but I also have concussion syndrome. And, uh, a TBI, traumatic brain injury from Afghanistan. So I was having trouble remembering stuff. So, I, you know, a combination of both of those things. I started writing stuff down as a way of remembering stuff because it was important to me. And it just kind of flowed from there. And I found that I not only enjoyed it, it was actually uh, made me feel good. So were you able to sort of drill down on the, on what it is about journaling and writing, like how that uh, makes you feel good? Have you done any philosophy on that, some introspection? 
Well, kind of. In fact, that for me, I, you know, probably like a lot of men and probably like a lot of soldiers, not really. I mean, we like to tell stories sitting around over a beer and, you know, telling stories is great, but we don't talk about real stuff, you know, how we feel and what's going on in our head. Yeah, we talk about girls friends. and guns. Exactly. And, and so that's easy. But talking about the other stuff doesn't come easy. And it never came easy to me. And I found that writing, because nobody else was going to read it, it came easy. And I would read it back to myself. Some days I would spend hours writing. Even when I was at work as a chief with the military police, I would be in my office, I'd close the door, and I'd write for two or three hours. And that night I would read it back. And sometimes I'd laugh, sometimes I'd cry, sometimes I'd be angry. But at the end of it, I would always feel better. And uh, so that's kind of how it happened. Writing is an act of mindfulness. And there's many, many different ways uh, to be mindful. But understanding the mechanism of it, like for the sake of our audience, I'd like to explain it a little bit. Whenever you're being what people would call mindful, you're getting out of your head and you're focusing your energy and your thoughts towards a task, uh, towards a task or towards your environment. It's also a form of grounding. So grounding just means uh, really settling into where you are now in the present moment, as opposed to being uh, lost in the past or fretting about the future. The The Power of Now is one of the books written by Eckhart Tolle. Fantastic book. Also, he wrote A New Earth, another fantastic book. Powerful for anybody to read. Very, very important. Um, when you are writing, the actual mechanism that's going on there, because uh, I've published two books, um, doesn't matter what you're writing about, actually. But if you're writing about your experiences, and especially experiences that have troubled you uh, that, or were traumatic, when it's in your head, it's a bag of cats. It's chaos. It's bouncing around and you don't really have, it's difficult to have control of those thoughts. And that's why we have nightmares and these things haunt us because it's chaos and it creates anxiety and uncertainty and anger and depression and all these things. So if we can still the chaos and create order, how we do that is by taking the thoughts out of our pumpkin and putting it on paper. When it's on paper, we're turning we're taking chaos and creating order. We're getting control of these thoughts by putting them on the paper. And that's how it works. Does that resonate with you the way I've described that, John? You hit that right on the head, brother. I tell you, it, it's exactly how I felt when I was writing. And, you know, the more I talked to the professionals, the more stuff that was coming up in my head. And when I would get home at the end of the day, even though I felt better for talking to this professional, there was so much stuff in my head and memories and some good, some bad. And they were all clouded and mixed up. And, you know, I had bad dreams. I, I, you know, I hurt my wife in my sleep one night. There was just so much going on that I was yeah. just, it was terrifying. And I found that putting it on paper and reading it back to myself where it made sense was calming. It actually calmed me. And uh, initially, it kind of shocked me that something so simple. I mean, I I hid the fact that I was having issues for 10 years. And I hid it very well. And I carried on my career. I hid it from my coworkers and my bosses and, and whatever. But I didn't hide it from my family. They knew something was going on. And, you know, but they're the ones that see you at your worst and your best. So I found that, you know, after a night like I had where I injured my wife, in bed, I was able to sit down and write something about that on paper 
and it found a way to calm me. It, it, I couldn't talk to my wife about it. I mean, it just was, I just couldn't do it. But I could come in my office and close the door, and I was able to put it on paper, and I was able to read it back to myself with all the negative stuff that I wrote. I was able to read it back to myself, and it would give me this calm feeling, and I would be relaxed, and I would be able to carry on with my day. Because you're turning the chaos into order. Absolutely. And it, it worked for me. I was shocked that it was so simple that it actually worked because nothing else seemed to work. You know, you try all the, the normal stuff. And I went to a lot of the mindfulness uh, classes and did some stuff like that. And I learned a lot from them. But something so simple as sitting down and putting my words and thoughts that were all over the place in my head on paper actually helped me. Just listening like to you, else. it occurs to me, John, that uh, the act of journaling or putting your, your thoughts down on paper, it's similar to one of the functions of peer support. So in peer support, one of the functions of it, one of the things about peer support, one of the tools that, uh, whether it's conscious or unconscious, part of the reason of why it's healing is that you hear yourself say things that you wouldn't say anywhere else because it's a place where there's no judgment where there's people that get it it's not some 23 year old therapist you know it's it's other soldiers or um and there's something about it being able to 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 say your story and then also hearing other people's stories that are similar and then you go oh okay i'm not alone and when you hear it out loud and you're able to say it out loud, you're able to process it and think about it in, in a way that's that's deeper and uh, and more grounded. And then you start to get the insights. And, and that's how you start to process this information in a way that's healthy, and it makes it easier to hold it, you know, and, uh, and makes some of the memories and the perspectives easier to deal with. So when you are journaling, does that function so anybody that doesn't have access to to properly done peer support if you don't have access to a peer support group or if that's just not for you fine you can get the same effect by putting your thoughts down on paper and as a regular habit every day every day write anything about anything it doesn't matter just get it on paper and once again it's exactly how I, how it was and how I felt and peer support for me. I mean, I, I never went to peer support groups and I, there was a couple of reasons for it. One, I wasn't in a place where I felt comfortable yet in talking to anybody. Sure. But I also put a lot of pressure on myself because, you know, a lot of the trauma that I suffered, not all of it, but a lot of the trauma that I suffered was as a master warrant officer. And now I'm a chief warrant officer. And as you go up in rank, I mean, whether it's, you know, I'm not sure how that sounds, but as you up in rank, you have less and less people. You, know, you call it peer support. Well, you have a lot less peers. And I was yeah. working in an environment in Ottawa where I thought I would never end up. I mean, the last place in the world I wanted to go was Ottawa. And for the end of my career, I ended up in Ottawa. But all of the chiefs that I knew in Ottawa, well, 99% of the chiefs that I met in Ottawa were non-combat arms guys. They were non-army guys. There were lots of, you know, career administrative type people, uh, but not a lot of folks that I considered, and I don't want this to sound negative, but not a lot of folks I considered my peer. And as a chief, you know, trying to, 
you know, these are the people that you talk with every day. And I never felt comfortable talking to them. And uh, so I just kind of ignored the peer support stuff for the time being. And I decided that, hey, who better to tell my story to than myself? And uh, that's kind of how it it came about. uh, And it, it worked for me. I'm really glad you brought up this particular topic. I have definitely not covered it properly uh, in all these episodes that I've done. Um, the higher you go in rank, the less peer, the fewer peers that you have. And it's not about being better or, you know, I'm outside the wire. You couldn't get it. That's not really what it's about. It's, it's about cultural competence. So if you're a paramedic, a group of paramedics is the best um, peer support group. If you're an army soldier, then that's the best. Uh, peer support group if you're uh, an air force fella you know um, that's or (laughs) airman or air person god i don't even know if you're in the air force (laughs) there you go i tried to get it right if you're if you're in the air force um you know and that's all you've been your whole career then you're going to click and resonate with those people better so it's not about like okay i'm i'm an outside the wire guy so i'm better or i'm tougher or anything like that it's just no it's just these are my experiences so the only way to really connect with people is with others that had similar experiences that's exactly right yeah and you have to be able to relate to each other and it's very difficult to relate to people who don't have similar experiences and you know for somebody who spent almost my whole career on an army base and then to end up in Ottawa for the last five years of my career, even though I really enjoyed the time with the military police, for example, it was a different culture, a different environment, and it was a tough spot to be when you're looking to find someone to kind of talk to about really, really serious stuff and, and traumatic stuff. So, yeah, it, it was it was a, probably the worst place I could have been. Uh, at the end of my career when I was trying to find help. Uh, at the end of the day, it worked out. And, uh, you know, I had some, I met some great folks in Ottawa who, who did a lot for me. But, uh, yeah, that peer support stuff uh, gets more difficult as you go up in rank. I mean, it's, you know, I was talking to uh, my, uh, at the time, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Omar Lavoie, uh, General Lavoie, now retired. And he, he had mentioned that to me. And uh, one time we were talking, you know, he said, Bobby Gerard, before he had been killed, he's RSM, our RSM in Afghanistan, he said he was the only person that he really felt comfortable talking to. And once Bobby was gone, once, once the RSM had been killed, uh, Colonel Lavoie said, you know, he, it was like he had lost a part of himself. He had no one that he felt he could kind of talk to. And I, and I understood that perfectly. Uh, my command team partner, Major Sprague, at the time in Afghanistan, I could talk to him about stuff. We were more than just a command team. We became friends, and we spent that much time with each other. But outside of him, I never really had that connection with somebody, even though I had lots of friends. I had friends who were corporals. I had friends who were chiefs. I had friends who were colonels. But I never felt comfortable talking to anybody outside of that small little command team we had uh, for a long time. The injury of PTSD is an injury of disconnection and isolation. Um, when, when you have it, it disconnects you from the person that you used to be. The, it disconnects you from the dreams and aspirations of who you were going to be. Um, and it disconnects you from others. When you are higher up in rank, you are even more isolated and disconnected. 
And it's the disconnection that's the pain because you feel alone and isolated. You know, um, when you're in, if somebody's in prison, the worst thing you can do is put them in the isolation tank, uh, devoid of other human contact. Because that's just how we're built. We're tribal animals. We're pack animals. And we need that connection with each other and real connection where you can be yourself, where you don't have to put on a show, where you don't have to be the man with a plan. You're just you. You're just John Barnes. And if you don't have that, it's a very lonely place to be. And then you went to the military police, which by just the nature of the trade, they are very isolated because they don't have that team. They're not like combat arms. Combat arms is that team, I've got your six uh, culture. It's, it's how the structure is, you know, and you have a sense of we are together, we are a unit, mission before self. That's not true with any kind of uh, police work, MP or, or otherwise. They're all, all a bunch of individuals. Uh, not, and that's not a slight. That's just how the trade is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so now you're even more isolated. Plus, you're with MPs and you're an infantryman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's not the same. We're different. Right, so you got that culture clash. Uh, you you were truly isolated in, in um, from from every angle, John. So how did you how did you deal with that? Like, where was just was the writing your only outlet, or were there other outlets where you're able to connect with people and and just be yourself? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a combination of things. I believe um, my family's always been good. So I've always had a great family. And, you know, by that time, my, my two kids had, had grown up and moved out. And it was just my wife and I. But, you know, being in a job where I got to go home every day to my wife definitely helped. And uh, she has, you know, we've been married for 32 years. She understands exactly. You know, she's an Air Force veteran herself. She understands exactly where I was coming from. Uh, so I found that to be really helpful, but also when I made the decision uh, in 2016, finally, that I needed to talk to somebody professionally. I think that really helped. Uh, I had a very understanding boss. Uh, General Rob Delaney was the Provo Marshal. It went to military police. Kay Bretner, very personable guy. Uh, him and I just struck it really well together. I mean, I'm a Newfoundlander. He's a Cape Bretoner. Uh, I think it was just a, a quick connection there. And he was somebody that, even though I didn't talk to him about a lot of the stuff that I put in my book, I did give him a heads up on the issues I was dealing with. And he understood those issues so that if he walked down to my office and my door was closed and lights were off, he knew not to come in. Uh, and little things like that. So I had the flexibility of being in a job where I could uh, separate myself from everybody else without causing an uproar. You know, you do that in a battalion. If I'm DR7 of a battalion and I decide to close my door and turn off the lights for three hours, it would probably cause a bit of an uproar. Mm. I was in a position where I could do that. Or I could just walk into General Delaney's office and say, you know, it's it's 1 o'clock, uh, sir, I'm heading home. No problem, Mr. Barnes, see you tomorrow because he understood that I had to go home. So I think that was really helpful as well. And uh, around the same time, my first grandkids arrived, and they were a godsend. So if I had a bad day, 
I'd FaceTime my daughter and see my grandkids, and uh, that would bring a smile to my face. Uh, but at the end of almost every day during that time frame, uh, it went back to my writing. Somewhere that day, I would find myself alone writing uh, down my thoughts. Sounds like you got a lawnmower going off uh, outside your window there. You weren't you weren't hearing that? No. No, I don't think it's on my end. (laughs) That's all right. I'm not wearing my hearing aids. Normally I wear hearing aids, so who knows? (laughs) Yeah, it could be, could be. It sounds like it's gone now, so we're good. But um, we've got David Ott in the comment session. Do you remember David Ott? Yes, yeah. Well, he's saying hello. He says you were a great soldier. Is that true? (laughs) You know, we, we have a tendency of telling each other that you know, we're all great soldiers. Um, it's like people call me a hero, right? And I say, please don't call me a hero. You know, I'm not a hero. And I know I'm not a hero because I've walked with heroes. I've seen real heroes. Yeah. So, you know, don't use that term with me. My great soldier, you know, I believe that there was a time in my career where I was uh, uh, less than honorable soldier. And I write that in my book. I tell the truth about how I was as a young master corporal and sergeant. And I behaved the way that, you know, the Royal Canadian Regiment, and I might add the PPCLI, because I went to the battle school in Wainwright where I learned to be a master corporal on my ICC course, uh, where I learned that, you know, that's how they wanted me to behave. And it uh, wasn't, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best. Uh, but in, I think after I became a sergeant, um, I think I changed a lot. And I became a, I think I became a good leader. Uh, whether or not I was a great soldier, uh, that's for others to uh, to decide. So, what was it about the teaching uh, with your? So, for the audience, ISCC at the time it's changed now, but uh, the ISCC was the leadership course where you could um, become a non commissioned officer. So, where you could be uh, a, a jack, <laughs> master corporal, or um, uh, and move on to sergeant. So yeah. what was it about your ICC course where you now in hindsight disagree with uh, how they thought you should be as a leader? And it wasn't just the ICC course. I just kind of put that in there to make sure I, you know, I got the Patricias involved. It was, <laughs> it was that whole generation of the early 80s yeah. where, you know, master corporals, sergeants, uh, to me anyway, were terrifying. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I joined at a time where uh, respect perhaps wasn't uh, something that people thought about on a daily basis for each other, at least for young soldiers. Um, people talk to me about the good old days, and I always say, well, it depends on who you were. You know, if you talk to the right person, the good old days probably weren't that good. Uh, and there were times where, you know, I probably. Uh, follow that example. You know, on, on my pre-ICC course in Winnipeg, I was in Winnipeg at the time with three hours here. Uh, you know, the staff that I had loved to you insult people. You know, no matter what, whatever the little thing they could find about you as a, as a student, they zoned in on that. You know, if you were a little bit overweight, if you had, you know, uh, crooked teeth, or if you were Jewish or Catholic or Newfoundland or or, you know, a cowboy from out west, or, you know, they thought you were gay. God, I mean, you know, whatever. They zoned in on that, and it could be 
it was something that they just poked at and poked at and poked at. And I thought, you know, when I graduated from my IC course, I said, you know, that's obviously, I believe that works, you know, the harder you insult and scream and yell at a soldier, the better soldier you're going to make. And I followed that example for the first few years where I was bloody terror. And, you know, I couldn't insult people fast enough and, and good enough. And I got to instruct on an ICC course where I really had the opportunity to, to be um, all that I could be. And I really was. I mean, I, I look back on some of the comments I made, some of the things I made people do. Uh, I'm embarrassed about them, but I mentioned them in my book. I made a, an RCR soldier, a combined course in Wainwright. I made a young, not you know, an older corporal, RCR, stand in his closet, close the door, and call himself an asshole for five minutes. Uh, you know, to me, I thought that was great. And the staff all laughed and everything, you know. But that was kind of where my my leadership changed. At the end of that course in Wainwright, uh, combined PPCLI, RCR course, combined staff. I remember walking down the front line, and my goal was to get rid of this RCR corporal. My goal was he's not passing this course. He had uh, asthma, and he would wheeze when he ran, and it would drive me crazy, and I would make fun of him and insult him. And I remember when I walked down the aisle on graduation day to inspect uh, my guys, he stood there at attention, and he was graduating, and I shook his hand, and I said, I want to apologize for how I treated you. Uh, I am, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very angry with myself, uh, and he just laughed and said, oh, don't worry about it. Sergeant, that didn't bother me at all. That was all good. And I thought to myself, here's another corporal going off to be a master corporal who thinks that was okay. And uh, I think that was the moment where I kind of said, okay, that is not good. That's not good enough. And I've tried ever since then uh, to respect everybody in uniform. The transformation that you went through is what we see with police officers all the time. The, uh, you always see the young cop and, you know, doing the tough guy act and uh, yeah. arms crossed and kind of barking at people. And then you see somebody that's been doing it five or ten years. They're like, "Hey, easy there, kid." <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was part of it. I mean, I was, yeah. I went on my ISCC course in Wainwright as a private, and you know, I got uh, dapsed to corporal, and I found myself in Wainwright as a private. And when I attended that course, three RCR <clears throat> had just come back from Germany about a year earlier. And it was a very senior battalion because, you know, you didn't post a lot of folks to Germany. Uh, and I believe I was one of three privates on my course, a mixture of RCR and Patricia. And I think uh, one of three privates. And on the other course, there was two courses. I think there was four or five privates. Everybody else was corporal. So, I mean, I was, you know, feeling like a god almost. Like, <laughs> this age, and I'm only a private, and next thing you know, they're promoting me to master corporal, and two years later, I'm a sergeant, you know, with seven or eight years in rank. And I thought, I'm the best. I am the best. And, uh, you know, but I kind of learned very quickly that uh, there was another side to leadership. I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of leadership in my uh, career. And I used to say to, especially to the military police when I was there, I would say, I was part of the problem. Like today we have a problem in the CF. Uh, the way we, we treat 
those that are different than us, the way the the way we treat our subordinates. And I said, I was part of that problem. I was one of those. And I had to learn and I had to change and I did change. But I'm not ashamed to say that once upon a time I was part of that problem. When you went through, when I went through, my uh, battle school was 91. And ours was the last traditional course, the very last one in uh, in 91. After that, everything changed. They gave, uh, came up with the stress cards and, and everything else. Yeah. We started with 18 people on our course. It was the smallest course ever to graduate. We graduated with five. That's never happened before in the history of the regiment. <laughs> and um, so I, I understand the old school 80s battle school because I went through it. And it was tough as hell. It was brutal. So what are the pros and the cons of how it was compared to how it is now? And, you know, that's a, a really good question. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that where it was was probably uh, not a good place. It had to change. Uh, but where we are today, has prob- the pendulum has probably swung a little too far. And I believe that our soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, whomever, have to be trained to a level where they're going to react to commands, they're going to do what they're told, when they're told, and they're ready to fight for this country. I think we sometimes today forget that the goal of the Canadian Forces, you know, is not to to do drill and to march around and to do this or that. It is to be prepared to fight for your country. And soldiers have to be tough to do that. However... There is a way to do that without being insulting personally to people and treating them like dirt and, and being, whether it's racist or sexist or well, all of those other terms that I saw happening in the early 80s. Yeah. Those don't need to be there. But nothing wrong with being tough. And yeah, if even anybody, when I change my it, leadership style, if anybody, never, was, if anybody was First Nations, they'd always get the nickname Chief. And that's not okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's not okay. And I was called a fucking newfie. Most of my uh, most of my uh, early uh, years, and then it became fucking dumb newfie. And you know, at the time, you did what everybody else did. You laughed it off and hoped that they'd go on to the next person. Uh, my friend, uh, who was an in Irish, the room with me, an Irishman with his brains kicked out. Exactly. <laughs> and I was in a room with another Newfoundlander. His name was Rick Button. He went PPCLI. Uh, he rebadged PPCLI, and he was running the library, I believe, when he retired in Winnipeg, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, another Newfoundlander, and uh, our sergeant would call us Newfie bookends. You two fucking dumb Newfies are my bookends. And at the time, right, you just kind of laugh it off, but, you know, it's insulting. And those were some of the good things that I heard. Yeah. And so, yeah, I believe that we still have to be tough with our soldiers. Training has to be hard, but it has to make sense. Training has to make sense. You don't do something. Having a guy scrubbing a drill hall with a toothbrush on his hands and knees for eight hours really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I saw that happening in one hour Sierra. It, it didn't make sense to me then. It doesn't make sense to me now. What is that teaching this young soldier about anything? If you want him to clean the drill hall, give him a mountain bucket and have him clean the drill hall. But to have him on his hands and knees with a toothbrush scrubbing a drill hall uh, so that people coming and going see him uh, didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I believe there's a way we do things that we can do better. However, 
let's not swing that pendulum so far that we become a civilian army who's more concerned with whether they can wear earrings and have a dress on with pink hair than they are about how combat effective they are. What's your opinion on the sleep deprivation that we go through in battle school and ICC and recce? And once again, I think it's a, a huge part of training. Absolutely a huge part of training. I mean, I learned, personally learned in Afghanistan that being tired and hungry and deprived of sleep, you still have to be able to fight. You have to be alert. So I think that is important. But once again, it has to make sense. You have to do it so that it has something to do with training. Just to keep people awake for the sake of keeping them awake doesn't really make sense to me. If you're keeping them awake because they're doing sentry or they're doing patrolling or they're out doing something, important and learning then i'm okay with that well it does teach you what you can do you know um but the worst i ever went through was defensive x in battle school and that was the sleep deprivation week typically you go a full five days not a wink and uh, i got lucky i only had three because that we had a doctor i mean another guy had a doctor's appointment in edmonton so uh, we got to sleep yay but uh <laughs> only had 72 hours without a wink but, um, my God, that's got to be one of the worst experiences I've ever had. The, the hallucinations are fantastic, though. They kick in around 36 oh, hours. Yeah. Those are a good time. Yeah, yeah. But, I saw uh, all kinds of things in, the, in Wainwright when I was on my eyes. <laughs> of course, I weren't there. Five days without sleep doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me because one of the things that teaches a young soldier, which I learned when I was instructing on a QL3 course in Meaford, is that they learn how to sneak sleep when they're on sentry. Yeah. It's more important. Two guys out of sentry, one is sleeping and one is not watching their front. They're watching for staff. Yeah, that's and right. And that happens all the time. So have you accomplished the goal? Probably not. You want those two guys awake and alert at all times. When I'm in Afghanistan, I don't want one of my sentry who's on a five-hour shift or a three-hour shift sleeping. Uh, but we're teaching them that they are so tired that one of them is willing to take the risk because while the other one looks behind him for staff. So not really a good lesson to teach. On the other side of it, though, um, where I see that there's a bit of a pro, it teaches you what you can do. You know, um, if battle school were easy, it wouldn't have the value. If <laughs> if you weren't pushed, then you'd wouldn't know what you're worth because you didn't really test yourself. So by testing yourself to such a brutal extreme like we do in uh, through battle school then you know that you can and you might not ever have to do it again in your life <laughs> but if it, if you ever called upon uh you'd be like oh i've been here before uh, i can do this i can do a thousand yeah. times more than i ever thought i was possible was possible i can push myself self further faster longer than than i thought possible and and that's where the value is i think is no i agree with that and i agree with that what you just said my, I think the only point I would add is to say what I said before, that it has to be geared towards training. Yeah. I remember having to sit on my QL3 course. Uh, we got back from a patrol, and we got back probably mid-mornings or midnight, I mean, like around 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, and we were doing advanced contact starting at 6 the next morning. So we had that three- or four-hour period, and we, were, we had a 10-man tent set up. Uh, we had sentries out. And instead of, you know, they could have had us preparing defenses or they could have had us, if they wanted to keep us awake, what they did was they had us all sit outside the tents in the cold for four hours while they did nothing so that we wouldn't go to sleep. 
to me, that didn't make sense. I would much rather have been digging a snow defense for those four hours. Still not getting any sleep, but it's geared towards training. But instead, he just sat us in the cold for four hours to make sure we didn't fall asleep. Didn't make sense to me at the time. I understand the lack of sleep, and I agree with you 100%. You need to be able to push our soldiers to a limit where they don't think they can go, but always geared towards training. That's how I believe it. It's funny how dangerous it is, too, though. Like on Defensive X, um, I don't know if we had live rounds. Oh, we did have live rounds. Um, Not good. It's not too good to have live rounds with somebody that's sleep fucked for the last uh, three, four, five days. Um, I I actually considered shooting at one of the hallucinations that I had that was behind lines. It was uh, defensive X in February, so colder than a witch's tit, literally thirty below while we're sitting there in trenches. I saw, and I, John, I saw them as clear as day. I saw Star Wars stormtroopers cross country skiing behind our lines. <laughs> I saw it, you know, and uh, I, and I thought it was real, and I and I considered shooting. <laughs> no, I believe you. I've had the same thing. I didn't see what you saw, but I've seen. I saw things I knew eventually that weren't real. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I've seen it as well. I fell asleep standing up once in in Norway years ago as a young private, and we had humped over this mountain. All freaking day, we're supposed to attack an enemy position at first light. It was going to be the Canadian Airborne Regiment who was playing enemy force. Anyway, our young platoon commander got us lost going over the mountain. And by the time we got there, it was like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. The Airborne had already pulled out to go do another task. So we had no enemy to attack. And we went into their snow defenses. And I remember standing in the snow defense with my rifle. And the next thing I remember is smashing my face on my rifle and laying in the snow. I fell I fell asleep standing up and passed out in the snow. Uh, I was so tired. So, yeah, it, it, uh, I've been pretty tired. The airborne didn't bother to stick around long enough to get killed. <laughs> no, they had to head off and uh, do their dirty deed somewhere else, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always the Fantasians. They're always handy yeah. to kill. The, the Fantasian forces. <laughs> So let's uh, jump into your book, White School, Black Memories. Now, there's a movie being produced right now. I had um, the good fortune and honor of being a part of it. I had a couple of roles all about the white school and um, and everything to do with that. They're, they're still doing the shooting. They're trying to have it ready for theaters um, in for, for uh, Remembrance Day. So we'll see if it actually is out in time. But... First of all, for people that don't know, the white school in Afghanistan wasn't a school for white people. It was just a school that was white. And tell me about that place, the significance of it, and let's get into your book. Sure. So when I got to Afghanistan in August of 2006, we were replacing uh, the Patricia Battalion that was there before us. And one of the first things I remember talking to the Patricia Sergeant Major, I'm trying to remember his name, I think it was Hoyer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He said to me, he said, you guys are going to have to deal with the white school. He says, you know, we've already lost uh, several soldiers in the last few weeks uh, fighting by the white school and something you're going to have to deal with. So just got on the ground and we're already hearing about this white school. And the white school for significance value uh, in Kandahar, where one of the initial meetings took place uh, with Mullah Omar to form the Taliban 
and uh, their homeland, of course, their you know, Kandahar is where they're uh, from. So this white school had significance to the Taliban as well, and uh, they had been digging in there during the tour previous to ours with the Patricias there, uh, and probably years before that, because when you know when it's all over and we go in there, we find some amazing. Uh, defensive positions and bunkers and miles and miles of trenches. And it was just, I mean, it just took a long, long time. So the white school uh, was on the north side of the Argonav River and uh, Masum Gar, which became a huge fob for Canadians, was just a mountain on the south side of the Argonav River. And it was where we kind of, uh, where the Patricias had kind of staged uh, for their crossing of the Argonav River a, a week or so before we took over where they lost, uh, I think, three soldiers or something. Uh, just, to tran- just to translate for the audience that, uh, that aren't uh, combat armed soldiers, uh, a FOB is a forward operating base. So I'll do that every now and then. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, no I'll do a translation. Yeah. And... Uh, so, you know, within a couple of weeks of us being there, we got our warning order that Operation Medusa was going to start. And uh, Charles Company, which I was the company sergeant major for, was our, our mission was to uh, take uh, objective rugby, uh, which was the area of the white school. And uh, we staged out of Masungar, uh, which was the mountain across uh, on this opposite of the uh, white school. And uh, that is where we kind of sat for the first three or four days. And then on the 3rd of September, we were uh, tasked to cross the Argonette River and take objective rugby. And uh, obviously that didn't go very well the first day. And the second day was even worse. Uh, But it was, uh, so that is the significance of that white school and how it became the title of my book. And the Black Memories, uh, that first day on September 3rd, I lost uh, four soldiers on that first day killed, uh, several wounded, and within that 24-hour period of Abedusa, uh, we lost five soldiers killed from Charles Company and around 40 wounded in 24 hours. Uh, and I myself was uh, wounded in the casualty collection point and was medevac back to Kandahar, so I was not around for the last uh, portion of that 24 hours where you American A-10 aircraft uh, mistakenly strafed Charles Company position and killed one of our soldiers and wounded about 30. So I didn't know about that friendly fire incident. I only knew about the one with uh, the F-16s or whatever with uh, um, Angel yep. Thayer and all four mm-hmm. of them there. But... Uh, I, as far as you know, during Afghanistan, how many times uh, were there friendly fire incidents where Americans killed Canadians? Is it just, uh, is during it my tour, there was only the one. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the one at Tarnak Farms, which you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I believe those were the only two where Canadians died. I think there was one other with the Patricias. Uh, nobody died. Uh, but those are the only ones I recall. For the audience, an A-10 Warthog is a subsonic airplane that is a flying freaking tank. Um, when it goes brap, 
there's no surviving it. Uh, the uh, the beaten zone, like the the hosing down of bullets. There's like a bullet per meter per square meter that comes down for the size of a football field. Um, it's death in the air, and uh, we don't have any, but the Americans do. And um, when they go brap, it's something else. But uh, if you're not in a trench, uh, there's you're not going to survive it. It's it's something else. Yeah, the A-10 is a, uh, I mean, it's an older aircraft, been around a long time, but it is uh, a killing machine, and that is exactly what it was made for. And the A-10 that night, uh, the night prior to this happening, so we did the assault on the 3rd of September. Uh, I was injured, medevaced. The company went back and staged out of Masungar. Their task was to go across the river again the next morning and attack uh, the white school object of rugby. So that night, uh, they had orders. The whole night, we had our uh, people flying, mostly Americans, flying fast air. We had A-10s. We had artillery. We had drones. We had helicopter gunships. Everything blasting object of rugby throughout the night. And at daylight, uh, our forward observer, uh, who was a good friend of mine, was talking to the pilot of the lead A-10. There was two A-10s still on station, still flying around, uh, hitting targets. And the A-10 pilot said that they had enough fuel left for one more sortie. And uh, the our forward uh, observer told him to hit the same target that an A or that an F-16 had just hit, which was uh, a big fireball that was there. He said, "No, that's your area. I want you to hit." Daylight was just coming. The sun was coming over the mountain. The lead pilot of the A-10 took off his night vision goggles that he'd been using all night for the last few hours in the dark. And he told his, I call him fire team partner, the second A-10 to do the same. They removed their goggles. They came over the side of the mountain. The sun was in their eyes. And the pilot, the lead pilot, saw the fire that was on Masum Gar that one of my soldiers had lit that morning to burn garbage. And he mistakenly uh, took that fire for the fireball that was a mile across the river on the other side of the river, which was the target, and uh, pulled his trigger and uh, fired into the area of that fire where all of Charles' company was just crawling out of their trenches, crawling out of their vehicles, getting ready for the morning attack. When it hit, and our, our forward observer controller uh, and our FAC uh, were able to stop uh, the firing very quickly. They were screaming into the uh, radio, stop, stop, stop. And uh, the second A-10 did not fire because he had heard that, and the first A-10 pulled up after firing the initial burst. And that is what, uh, and like I said, I wasn't there. I was laying in a hospital bed in Kandahar for my soldiers that were there. Uh, all they remember was hearing that burp. And then sparks, rounds, rocks. I mean, Masungars, all, all small stones and rocks. They flew everywhere. And luckily, the only uh, soldier, not luckily, I guess not bad term, but uh, we lost one soldier killed. And uh, Private Graham, who was an Olympic runner from Canada, for Canada in Barcelona during the Olympics, uh, he was killed immediately. And... About 37 soldiers were wounded, about half of them severely wounded, and uh, the other half with uh, uh, terrible flesh missing, bones broken from rocks and debris that were flying and ripping 
tearing of uh, flesh. There's never been, that I know of, there's never been an American pilot who's ever been charged for uh, a friendly fire incident that was lethal. They, I, I don't understand it. There was an investigation, and I, I don't know if the American pilot was charged. I can't remember right now. I know he was found culpable in the American investigation, and they sent an American team to Petawawa and briefed uh, 1RCR, specifically Charles Company, on the findings. And uh, they said even though, you know, things that were considered in the investigation was the, the taking off the night vision goggles, the sun coming up, the pilots were flying for several hours and were tired, uh, they mistake the fire. The one thing they had for us to watch was the video of the cockpit. And the cockpit was buzzing. There was an alarm system, and I can't remember what it's called because, you know, it's a technical Air Force thing. But there was an alarm sounding telling the pilot that he was not on target. And whether he ignored it or just was so sure, they, cut, they have a name for it, where you become very focused on the target. And anything that you hear in the peripheral or whatever doesn't really come to your senses because you are so focused on the target. In this case, the pilot was so focused on this fire in Charles Company area that he disregarded, ignored, didn't hear the alarms going off, and he fired at it. So he was held responsible uh, for that friendly fire, and I'm not sure what happened to him career-wise in charges, but he was found he was found uh, uh, culpable. It's a horrific, horrific story. The writing of this book, in order to get it to get it right, did you uh, collaborate with a lot of the other people that were there? So initially, uh, I didn't because, as I said, I you know I wrote oh, probably close to a thousand pages of writing when I was writing for therapy and for for me and. Uh, when a friend of mine talked me into letting him read this once, you know, he, he, he read it in one night. It was like eight or 900 pages. He came back and said, I couldn't put it down. I stayed up all night. I read it. He was a major in the military police. And he said, you have to tell this story. He, this story needs to get out. He says, this can't be something that you keep to yourself. Soldiers, families, civilians, they need to read this story. And uh, so that was when we, we turned it into to the book. And then I got some assistance. Not a lot, because as I say in the beginning of my book, I say, this is my story and this is my truth. Some of the stories may be affected by PTSD, time, stress. They may not be exactly as the soldier next to me remembers, because he might have been in a different position. But these are my truths. I've made nothing up, and everything I write is my belief to be true. But I did reach out. There was a few parts that I was a little confused on where I just knew I didn't get it right. And uh, I reached out to uh, people who were there uh, to get some help. But that was probably... uh, maybe five or six times throughout the whole process that I reached out for help. The rest of it is from my memories 
and uh, my truth. Have you had any collaboration with the filmmakers that are making the movie about it right now? No, I've uh, seen something online. I think it actually was something you had put online, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I read, and it actually caught my attention because I, had, I hadn't realized it was being done. And uh, But no, I, I haven't had uh, any connection with them. Well, when it's all out, if I ever get a copy of it or, or whatever, I'll make sure you have access to it. And, that would be uh, great. Yeah, it would be interesting. Movie magic is something else, I tell you. It's, yeah, uh, no it's, doubt. A, it's a lot like the army. There's a whole lot of hurry up and wait on those movie sets. <laughs> well, John, I, I think we're about there. Um, how can people find your book? Is it on Amazon? So right now it's on Amazon. It's been out for three weeks. Uh, it's been uh, on the number one bestseller list for most categories for the past three weeks. boy. It's sold, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's amazing to me, to somebody who has never written a book. Uh, I think I think a lot of military folks are jumping on board right now. We've really been pushing the book. One hundred percent of all the profits, my profits from this book, is going to a charity called Homes for Heroes. Uh, so John Barnes is not looking to buy a new boat. Everything is going to Homes for Heroes to try and give some dignity to our veterans that are living on the street. I haven't seen Dave so, Howard yeah. pushing it. Uh, I'll have to give, yeah. him a, give him a call and give him shit. He's like, hey, yeah. the funds are going to you. Use your network. Get get this out And I actually have spoken to him about it, and he knows I'm doing it. But, yeah, I was surprised that it didn't get pushed. So a little little less little less recognition out west right now. We're trying to get it pushed out west. Uh, a lot more out east, obviously, because that's where we're located. Um, but, yeah, on Amazon, uh, easy to order. Uh, I'm willing to sign books for people. I've got four or five signing ceremonies coming up around Ontario that I'm doing. And, as well, the Military Police Association, which just happens, just luck, that they happen to be in this little town I live in, Winchester, Ontario. Uh, the guy that runs their kit shop, is a member of the Lions Club, and that's what they use to uh, run their Military Police Association kit shop. So they also have books, and they have bought books, and anybody can go on the Military Police Association kit shop, order a book. They have a drop-down page where you can put in your name, and, and if you want something specific signed on the book, they then bring the book over to me, which is two minutes away. I sign it, and they mail it out to the individual. So people can actually get a mail copy through the Military Police Kit Shop, Association Kit Shop. Well, I might be able to help you out a little bit as well. We'll talk about Good, that. Good, yes. Uh, any help we can get, like I said, it's uh, Homes for Heroes. I believe it's a great charity. And anytime we can give dignity to a homeless veteran, I think it's something we need to strive to uh, to do. I've had Dave Howard on the show twice. Um, well, three times, actually. But... Uh, <laughs> What they've accomplished is significant. I don't agree with, with uh, how it is all rolled out, but uh, it doesn't matter what I agree with. They're doing something good. And they're in Calgary is where it started, then Edmonton, and now they're, um, they've are they got another one going up somewhere. And it, There's it's one in Kingston right now, amazing. here in Ontario in Kingston. Absolutely amazing. No, And I agree with you. I mean, there's, there, when I did my research, there was parts of how they rolled it out and parts of how they do things. I wasn't 100% uh, supporting of either, but overall, I like the idea uh, of what they're trying to accomplish, and they're doing something good. And, uh, yeah, if I was running the show, I'd probably do a couple of things a little differently, but I'm sure we all would. Uh, at the end of the day, 
if I can help one veteran get off the street, then I will feel uh, good about myself and go to sleep uh, soundly tonight. Well, before we sign off, let's pause right here. Um, For the audience and for anybody that hasn't heard me say it before, the reason that we need a Veterans Association food bank, or there's two of them in Calgary, there's also the Veterans Food Bank of Calgary, um, the reason we need food banks for veterans and housing for veterans and the reason we, ne- we need all of this is because the injury of post-traumatic stress disorder, which should, should be called post-traumatic stress injury to be more accurate, it's a neurological injury that quite often makes, it, makes you less able to create an income for yourself for a variety of reasons that uh, there's no need to extrapolate on very, very much. But at the end of the day, it often, and in, including in my case, I'm on a medical pension as a result. Um, it took six years to get it, but I'm on one. Um, the bottom line is that for because of the symptoms, you're not able to have consistent employment. So you will either be un- underemployed or unemployed because you just can't keep a job. And um, that is why there are so many who aren't asking for help. They're not going through therapy. They're not taking the healing path. And they do end up either suicide or homeless or all of the above. And, uh, and that's why we need to support Homes for Heroes and all of it and really do a much better job in prevention, which... Once I have the ears of the right people, I'll give them the plan to do exactly that. So we we have um, way more on the prevention and resilience side of things. So we have. I agree with that, Jess, and I believe that we need to find a way to coordinate all of these efforts. There are so many people out there now forming their own little groups and organizations to help veterans, all with great intent. But there are so many now that they're getting tangled with each other. And we need, a way, we need a way to coordinate it so that we have a combined effort here. Uh, lots of these organizations are small, but they do good things. But they are small, and uh, they're everywhere now. I mean, every time you look, there's a new veterans organization opening up, trying to help veterans, and it's very difficult. When I was looking to see who I wanted to give the money from the book to, it was very difficult to make a decision because there are so many charities out there. And, of course, if you go online and look, you, you know, you'll get the positive and the negative people's opinions. It was very, very difficult uh, for me to come up with a charity that uh, I really, really believed in. Yeah, it is tough, and that's also part of what I do on Operation Tango Romeo. I talk to every resource provider uh, that I can, and I have them on the show so that people can get to know them and understand what resources are out there and how to access them. Because as far as I know, uh, Operation Tango Romeo is the only center point in the country. I don't think there is another one. I don't think you can go anywhere else and to, to find out what the hell is out there. Like, what yeah. are the resources? Well, I, I have them all on the show to the best of my ability. Yeah. And I, 
there's a lot more to go. There's all kinds of people I haven't had on yet. And what's funny, and I'll, I'll say it publicly, I reached out to uh, the, the Legion Dominion Command, so the, uh, the, the guys that are na- national, they want nothing to do with me. I got this snarky cool. response from some underling, you know, trying to get me to um, uh, justify how I'm good enough to have <laughs> that they should be on my show. And uh, I just, yeah, no. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, I've had my issues with the terrible shame. My issues with the Legion in the last uh, few months as well. I mean, I when I came to Winchester, I volunteered at our local Legion as the service officer because they didn't have one. I don't go to the Legion very often. I don't. I'm not really a, a drinker. I don't hang out at the Legion. I'm not that kind of. But I did take the job as service officer to see if I could help. And I've helped a few people. Small town, you know, we have 47 veterans in our area. But, you know, I've already had my run-ins with, you know, Ontario Command and Dominion Command because they don't, it's like they are completely disconnected from our local towns and our local veterans. And, you know, I won't go into detail on it, but they weren't, they weren't uh, totally happy that I was, uh, giving my funds to Homes for Heroes. Well, and the Legion isn't isn't unique in this. Uh, there's all kinds of veterans organizations that I've run into in the work that I do that are really snotty. <laughs> they they uh, get their nose out of joint and get all butthurt um, because they're in competition for donation dollars. And uh, everybody thinks that they should be the only one. Well, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's... Um, it's really sad. There's a lot of ego involved and there are veterans organizations that are fighting each other and suing each other, which I've seen the Legion and tried the Legion. Terrible. Yeah. The one you're supporting Dave Howard, the Legion was suing yeah. Dave. That's probably why the Legion isn't excited then. Well, uh, uh, they were suing Dave because he said some words that, that were completely true, but hurt their feelings. And, um, but the words were completely true. I had everything that Dave said verified by, like, right out of the horse's mouth, you know, by the, the people that were be, that were involved. So he said nothing that was untrue. But uh, they're like, "Well, that hurts my feelings, so I'm going to sue you." And no way, you know, it's uh, it, it's something. Yeah, else. I think we need to find a way to for all of these organizations, including the Legion, but all of these organizations, to find a, a common ground and to start finding a way to to interconnect with each other because right now you're absolutely right. We're fighting each other. We're each group is fighting for the same dollars and they're, you know, it's becoming, uh, there's animosity out there and one organization bad mouths another organization, which I've heard. And it's not what we should be doing. No, I agree. And, uh, and these veteran support organizations got to stay the fuck out of politics. Stop it. Quit picking sides, you know, be a place where one size fits all. Absolutely. You should not give a rat's ass if people are supporting uh, the truckers or uh, the Freedom Convoy or or, or any of it. That is none of your goddamn business. But uh, there are several branches of the Royal Canadian Legion that have publicly, publicly said James Top is not welcome in their legion. Fucking atrocious. Stay out of politics. James Top, love him or hate him, agree with him or disagree, none of my business how you feel about other people. I don't care. But he's a veteran. 
a combat veteran. And every veteran should be welcome in every legion, or it's not a legion at all. I agree 100%. Yeah, there's no room for politics in this, but I tell you, it's there. Oh, my God, is it ever. (laughs) All right, brother, please stay on the line, and uh, I'm going to... We'll have a little offline chat about how I can support you further. Thank you so much, well, thank John. Thank you very much, and thank you for everything you do. I mean, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, when, I, when I saw your uh, name there a few months ago, I did my research, of course, and uh, you're doing a lot of good stuff, and, and keep it up. Uh, we need that. Thanks, brother. Doing my darndest. All right. All right, stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tangle Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families, even those dirty RCR. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please... Share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels because sharing is caring.